Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise. Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. The White House is more invested in the DNC than, than Obama's was, but also to not make it all about politics all the time. And what Biden's thinking is, is that if he can get something like the infrastructure bill passed, then that makes much more of a difference in people's lives that will benefit Democrats than pretty much anything else he could do. That's Edward Isaac Dover. He's a political correspondent at The Atlantic, where he covers the White House. He's also the author of the new book, Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaigns to Defeat Trump. Dover spent three years leading up to the 2020 presidential election, following the Democratic candidates closely, joining them on the road, going backstage after debates, and documenting their challenges on the campaign trail. Now, as we make our way through the first year of Biden's presidency, Dover joins me to discuss the souls of political parties— and if a post-Trump world is upon us. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Haley, who asks, what if Jeffrey Rosen hadn't refused to sign Jeffrey Clark's letter spewing election fraud conspiracy theories? How close did we get to a successful coup in this country? Well, Haley, that's an excellent question. And that's a horrifying hypothetical that you present. Just to take a step back and and give some background on what you're asking about, Jeffrey Rosen, of course, was in the closing weeks of the Trump administration, the acting attorney general after Bill Barr left. Jeffrey Clark is someone that most people had never heard of until recently. He was the chief of the environmental division at the Department of Justice, and in the final weeks, doubled as the acting chief of the civil division. So a high position, but certainly a couple of rungs below the top level of the Justice Department. And as Jeffrey Rosen has reportedly been testifying about, to the inspector general, and to Congress in the waning days of the administration, after the election was over, and after Donald Trump was deemed to have lost the election, this Department of Justice official was, among other things, was having private conversations with Donald Trump about the big lie and how to perpetrate the big lie, although they didn't use those words. And among other things he did was he drafted letters on behalf of the acting attorney general to officials in various states, not to federal officials, not to election authorities, but in the case of Georgia, to the Georgia state legislature itself, giving them grist to say that the election had been unfair and corrupt in that state without any evidence. In Jeffrey Clark's draft letter, he wrote, quote, the governor of Georgia should immediately call a special session to consider this important and urgent matter. And if he declines to do so, and this is stunning, we share with you our view, meaning the view of the Department of Justice officially, we share with you our view that the Georgia General Assembly has implied authority under the Constitution of the United States to call itself into special session for the limited purpose of considering issues pertaining to the appointment of presidential electors, end quote, basically saying, under the authority and auspices and prestige of the Justice Department's highest official, that the Georgia legislature could overturn the election. To go back to your question, it is to the credit of Jeffrey Rosen that he said, no way, no how, and that letter was never sent. Had it been sent, Who knows what kind of mischief could have been caused? You know, the big lie is something that we have talked about, we have fretted about, and led ultimately to the insurrection on January 6th, but it could have been even worse had a letter like this been sent to Georgia officials and to others. The thrust of the letter should remind you, as it reminds me, of some of the other tactics used by Donald Trump and the chilling phrase he used with acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen, which was something like, 
just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me. Now, this issue of Jeffrey Clark and the obscenity of his actions was actually the subject of our own Ellie Honig's note last week, in which he sketches out how terrible this action was and how Jeffrey Clark deserves his place at the top of the list of Donald Trump's worst enablers. And he quotes, as I will now, one of our colleagues at Vox Media, Aaron Ruper, who commented as follows when he learned the news of the draft Jeffrey Clark letter, quote, a reminder that the prospect of a second Trump administration staffed by people who follow his orders is an existential threat to American democracy, end quote. So to me, that's the best answer to your question. What would have happened? I think we would have had an existential threat to our democracy, and that threat persists so long as Donald Trump has a chance of coming back to office and installing in all the top positions people like Jeffrey Clark. So, of course, I've gotten a lot of questions about the resignation of Andrew Cuomo. I'm recording this on Wednesday morning. It's about a day after he stepped down or said he intends to step down in two weeks. The dust has settled a little bit, and I have a couple of quick reactions further to what I've said on the Insider podcast. One is I think that Andrew Cuomo did the right thing. It's the right thing for him. It's the right thing for the state. It's the right thing for democratic politics. It's the right thing for the people. Kathy Hochul, the lieutenant governor, the long-serving lieutenant governor, is widely respected, will take office, and will become the first woman governor of the state of New York. But I want to say something else about why this accountability was good. And it's because of the people who came forward courageously, the 11 women, who told their stories, found credible by the independent investigators, that there was some measure of accountability with respect to sexual harassment and sexual misconduct. And that, I think, is a good thing, no matter what party you're from, no matter whether you're a liberal or a conservative. And I know that there are people who are upset, who say on Twitter and social media and in other places, well, what about Donald Trump and the credible allegations against him? What about Matt Gates? How come if you're a Republican, it seems to these particular folks, there's no accountability? And that's a hard question to answer. But we need to be careful in engaging in a certain kind of whataboutism. If the facts support accountability for a particular person, then that person should be held accountable, whether they're a Democrat or a Republican. Political science professor Miranda Yaver posted something the other day that I think is important and bears repeating and bearing in mind. Quote, if you only care about sexual assault when it's committed by a member of the opposing political party, you don't really care about sexual assault. End quote. And I think that's true. That's true of people on the left. That's true of people on the right. This is from a writer at The Bulwark, Ben Parker, who wrote, quote, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has resigned, thereby demonstrating once again the benefits a political party accrues from not being a cult, end quote. I think that's food for thought as well. But my favorite reaction, my favorite response in the last 24 hours comes from my own daughter, who's 20 years old and working for a professor on her college campus, who after hearing all the news and seeing the back and forth, texted me the following, quote, we've never had a female governor, question mark, question mark, big yikes, end quote. Well, we're going to have one now. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail, and they then passed those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com preet. That's mintmobile.com preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, 
An original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. My guest this week is journalist Edward Isaac Dover. He's been covering Washington for over 10 years and now writes for The Atlantic. Before that, he covered local New York state and city politics. Dover's new book, Battle for the Soul, retraces the Democratic Party's journey to winning the presidency amidst internal divisions, and as the nation faced unprecedented challenges. Edward Isaac DeVere, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on the book. It's called Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaigns to Defeat Trump. So I guess it's obvious from the subtitle, but I'd like to begin by asking you, battle for the soul of what? I mean, it's battle for the soul of the country, uh, but battle for the soul of the Democratic Party, battle for the soul of politics. Uh, This phrase, you may remember, is one that Joe Biden started using uh, after Charlottesville in 2017. And he said, we're in a battle for the soul of the nation. But when he got into running, and it was this idea that he had initially about getting in that was, he just needed to get Trump out of the way. As love and hope and light join in the battle for the soul of the nation. And this is a battle we will win and we'll do it together. This was deeper than politics and Republicans or Democrats or policy, whatever it is. There was something fundamental going on. That was before we knew all of what 2020 would hold and even all of what the rest of the Trump presidency would hold. And... You think about all the things that ended up being in the balance in the course of the campaign. There's a quote in the book from Tom Hanks, who you know I turn to for all my political advice. Um, <laughs> he, Life is uh, a box of chocolates? <laughs> exactly. Um, but it was Tom Hanks not playing a character. He was doing a fundraiser for Biden in August of last year. Uh, and, of course, he was the first high-profile person who got COVID. Uh, he recovered. Uh, but he was saying at the fundraiser, You know, when you think about all the things that are going on in this election, uh, in this year, the public health crisis, the economic crisis, this was a little bit after uh, George Floyd, and so the racial reckoning that had been set up, all these things he said, and that it happens to be in a year when, as a country, America got to say, this is what we want versus that. Tom Hanks said, you know, you have to think that maybe there's something bigger going on. Whether or not you subscribe to the Tom Hanks uh, theology of this, uh, it is kind of amazing how many things ended up being in the middle of this. And then you pile on more stuff, Ruth Bader Ginsburg dying six weeks before the election and the Supreme Court balance changing. All of it just going on. And so, you know, the the book ends with this uh, interview that I did with Biden at the beginning of February, about 10 days into his presidency. And I said to him toward the beginning of the interview, so, Mr. President, I should tell you that we were bouncing around in a couple of different titles, but we finally landed on in the last couple of days and finalized it, uh, and it's going to be called Battle for the Soul. And he said to me in his uh, sort of sarcastic way, yeah, well, you know, the difference between you and me, you and me pal, is I actually believe it. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, I want to like, get into whether or not you believe it. <laughs> well, and I said to him, no, I think you, you may have been onto something because I think with all this stuff, it, it's hard to deny that, uh, that there was something fundamentally right there. I guess the last point I'd make on this, though, is that when Biden started using this phrase in the campaign in 2019, when he first got in, a lot of his aides told him to stop using it and that it wasn't polling well and people weren't responding to it. And what happened with him seems to be that he met a moment that he didn't even realize he was going to meet, that the moment wasn't there when he got into the race, but certainly was by the time uh, that November came around. And it certainly wasn't there in 1988 when he first ran for president. Sometimes, as he notes as a student of history and also a politician, 
the timing is everything. But I want to I want to ask you a philosophical question about this. Do, do political parties have souls? What does it mean? What does that mean? I I understand when we talk about people and people have different theological views about souls and what they are. I can even understand that a nation rooted in particular values and that draws its power from foundational documents like the Constitution and other founding documents, you can talk about the soul of a country, I guess. What what does it mean for a political party that many people would view as just being a sort of accretion of different factions with different interests who are left of center and have different views about a lot of different things? How can you rightly say that a, that a party has a soul and there could be a battle for it? Well, I think that in in years past, the conglomeration of of interests uh, idea of a party maybe made a little more sense than it does now right uh, republicans and democrats uh it seems have uh, for most people it, it's become part of an identity in a, in a much deeper way and when we see these studies that are done uh of uh, republicans and democrats generally living in different places or not being in relationships where, uh, whether a romantic relationship where a Republican is with a Democrat or uh, where uh, even on the friendship level, Democrats and Republicans don't tend to be friends with each other. There's a much bigger sorting that's going on. uh, And it seems like it's a fundamental question of what we want in a broad way, America to be. But the question you're asking is internally about the Democratic Party. Yeah, well, first, I'm going to ask about the Republicans too, but first the Democrats. What does it mean for there to be a soul? I think that it's what soul, I mean, I I did not write this uh, as the former Hebrew school teacher that I am. Um, (laughs) You're a good person to answer, (laughs) given given that background, Isaac. Um, I taught 10-year-olds mostly, so uh, we didn't get this deep. But I did major in philosophy in college, so maybe that gives me a little bit more. You keep, you know, Uh, now you're building up a lot of pressure for yourself. (laughs) You you keep adding to your credentials for being able to answer the philosophical questions, so I I hope you bring it home, Isaac. I, I, I do think that what we are seeing is whether there is a what it means within this sense of, okay, this is who who you are, identified as who you are as a person, more and more so for people as Democrats and as Republicans. Okay, so then what does that mean? What does it mean? Does that mean, uh, so for example, in the first primary debate that the Democrats had uh, in Miami, and it was the first night of the debate, so that that session is mostly remembered for Kamala Harris going after Joe Biden, but that was actually the second night. That first night, there was a question asked of whether people wanted to uh, treat border crossings as criminal behavior. And uh, a lot of the people on stage uh, raised their hands to say they didn't want to treat it that way. That's a fundamental thing. It's a value that goes beyond tax policy and goes into thinking about how we relate to each other as human beings that obviously intersects with policy. So it's not as easy as like what, a, a soul in any kind of a religious setting thinking of it, but, I, but how we define ourselves and how we think even now during the pandemic, whether the right way to approach coming out of the pandemic is to move much more toward uh, the communal way of uh, acting, The uh, what I think a lot of people on the left flank of the Democratic Party w- want to identify as a more democratic socialist approach, or whether it is more of a pragmatic approach. Um, the w- What Joe Biden would say was his approach uh, before, and is even his approach now, it's just in a different moment kind of pragmatism. So it's kind of a, a struggle or a scuffling over fundamental values and aspirations of a party. Is that fair? Yeah. Uh, and and I think in this moment, because it's mixed up with uh, the two parties reacting to each other, what kind of America we want this to be and what kind of an approach to government, a a thinking of the role of government in our lives we want it to be. It does not seem just happenstance that over the last four years there was a rise in uh, in hate crimes. That kind of thing flows out of our politics and uh, certainly seems to have some connection to Donald Trump's rhetoric. It flows out of our politics, not, not so much our culture? 
I think, well, I mean, those are, especially that we've just come from having a cultural star uh, be our president, uh, those are interconnected. They right? overlap. They you overlap. know, and I, and I do think that, like, one of the funny things that is true of America is that when someone is succeeding in a big way, we start talking about them running for office, right? This happened with you, right? But it's also, like, we talk about that as, oh, like, the top thing would be to run for president. It doesn't seem like that's true in a lot of other countries. But here, with Donald Trump is really popular, people are talking about, maybe you should run for president. That's, a, that's in itself you know, sort that's, of a crazy thing. That's very interesting. You know, it's very funny you say that, and I hadn't thought about it in this way. But it's true. Somebody gives a big speech. Wow. They should be president if they're already in office. If they're not in office and they give a big speech, well, they should run for something, even though— Folks have no idea what that person's views might be, have no idea what that person's <laughs> right. leadership skills might be. I, I often tell the story of a, of a prior guest on the show, Cyrus Habib, extraordinary individual, uh, blind lieutenant governor, former blind lieutenant governor of uh, the state of Washington. And he tells the story along these lines. Like, you know, he gave a speech once and people were very impressed and they had not known who he was before. <laughs> on the strength of that speech, that like, you should run for president. He's like, why? You don't know <laughs> anything about me. So, how and that's a be- guy who left politics for something that is completely different from politics, right? <laughs> to become a priest. I'm going to yeah. try to have him come and explain that because I think it's an extraordinary thing, both his prior career and and, and what he's chosen to do now to minister to people. Um, stay tuned for that. But how can it be the case that in the United States of America, there is a lot of disdain for politics and politicians? I haven't recently looked at a poll. You know, all institutions in America have less credibility and have less favorable ratings than they used to have, including the Supreme Court, the press, lawyers, medicine, you name it. How can it simultaneously be true that all of that respect for politicians has waned and the second that somebody shows any kind of uh, success or panache, people immediately imprint upon them political ambition? Um, And not just political ambition, but a desire for them to rise in politics. I don't know, because there's something pretty wrong with us probably <laughs> deep <laughs> deep deep in our heads that's your answer right? that's your analysis no, i mean look i uh i wrote i remember in the beginning of uh 2018 a story about oprah and whether she would run for president which was prompted by a really great speech she gave at the Golden Globes that made people start talking about it. And uh, then it became an assignment that I got from an editor. Uh, I wrote the piece, but uh, Oprah doesn't want to run for president. Oprah actually has a pretty good life. And that was part of what I heard back. As it happened in the Democratic race, the two people who were the most successful, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, are people who have been in politics their entire lives, right? Uh, Joe Biden won his first election in 1970. Uh, Bernie Sanders won his first election in 1980. I think it was 81. I might have been 80. But <laughs> it's a long time before uh, being in a position to be the Democratic nominee. So part of what maybe is going on uh, or was going on in the Democratic Party is uh, looking to a little bit more experience all of a sudden and not thinking that something <laughs> would be interesting just because they got flashy uh, and and were able to go ahead. But I remember sitting at one point in uh, April of 2019 in a coffee shop in Concord, New Hampshire with Pete Buttigieg, uh, right at the moment when his campaign was first starting to take off. And I had known Buttigieg from when he decided to run for DNC chair at the end of 2016. Uh, And everybody thought that was crazy because who is this guy? He's just the mayor of South Bend. And all of a sudden, who is this guy? He's the the mayor of South Bend, and yet he was starting to be a real factor in presidential polls. And I had gone around New Hampshire, and I'd said to people, okay, I know you think he's interesting, but like President Pete Buttigieg? And the people were all saying to me, yeah, that seems right. And I was trying (laughs) to be uh, (laughs) the skeptical reporter. And one of these conversations uh, is in the book where I say to someone, okay, but like there's a there's some kind of emergency disaster or watching tv the you know that famous shot of the presidential seal is on the screen and then it fades away and then it's Pete Buttigieg behind the desk in the Oval Office. And this woman said to me, yeah, well, you know, he's impressive. And my daughter's impressive. And, and I think that he's impressive. And so why, why not? <laughs> Which is such a strange thing. Like, I'm glad we should all be proud of our kids. <laughs> um, and I said to Buttigieg then at that coffee shop, I mean, is this because of Donald Trump? And he said to me, 
Well, you know, it's very Pete Buttigieg way. Well, I, I, I'd like to think not a lot of it is. Or, <laughs> uh, but of course, some of it was. Well, but Donald Trump has accelerated it because Donald Trump himself, <laughs> you know, who was the entree for him? Nobody. Right. You know, he, uh, he, he's, he's like the guy that you could have made these comments about when he decided he was going to run and nobody thought he could win. And, you know, it's the last number of years in politics has reminded me of what William Goldman said, famous, you know, perhaps the best screenwriter of all time. You know, no one knows anything. And, you know, I appreciate that you and other smart people opine on these things, but you can't always predict. Now, can we pause on the Democrats for a second? Sure. Switch to the Republicans and then we'll go back to the Democrats for equal time. <laughs> so which party is facing a more serious and existential battle for the soul? The Democrats? that you write about mostly in this book, or the Republicans? And in showing your work and answering that question, consider addressing also the question of whether or not Liz Cheney is a Republican. Is Donald Trump a Republican? Well, I, I think that the it's a bigger question for the Republicans because it comes down to, at this point, whether or not they believe in America they believe in the Constitution, whether they believe in elections, uh, these sorts of things, or whether it's just about winning and winning for it's not quite clear what reason other than to beat the other guys. And even if that means questioning and cheerleading, cheating, should there be the opportunity, that's a real different thing. Uh, well, you know, and, it's, 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 what you're saying, is it just based on what you said a second ago, within the Republican Party, is it the battle over you know, one conception of the soul versus another conception of the soul? Or is it a battle between having a soul or not? It might be closer to the latter. Uh, and, and you see that you know, where Liz Cheney, <laughs> you know, she, is, she is not a liberal. She is right. not— You giggled. Uh, <laughs> I want the record to reflect that you began I, a well, sentence, I'm, a declarative I, sentence about Liz Cheney with a giggle. Where did the giggle come from? Well, I'll tell you, I was talking to Liz Cheney uh, recently, uh, and I was talking to her for uh, about Hakeem Jeffries, who is one of the leaders in the House on the Democratic side and might end up being the next Speaker of the House. And she and Jeffries had developed a pretty good working relationship around the, the second impeachment of Trump. Uh, I was getting her to reflect on him a little bit. And she, at the end of the conversation, said to me, I just want to be clear. I don't agree with him on any kind of policy, and I think he's a partisan. But he does believe in the Constitution, and he does believe in Congress as an institution. She did that inadvertent rhyme herself, so that's why it's in my head. <laughs> uh, and I, I started laughing then. I guess I'm chuckling because I'm remembering laughing to her. And I said, isn't that weird, Congresswoman, that you have to, like, say that now? Like, yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> we disagree on everything, but we do both believe in the Constitution. But that is where we are as a country at this point, which is really bizarre. And it's not that we're there because Democrats and Republicans are fighting with each other. It's because of what's happening within the Republican Party. And it's what happens when Cheney says that Donald Trump seems to have been involved in instigating some of the action uh, that was involved with the riot, which is just a factual statement. And for that, she is pushed out of her leadership post. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, is now saying that she's a Pelosi Republican, whatever that means, because she uh, took a spot on the, the commission to investigate the riot. Then it becomes that this is not about uh, – the Republican Party at this point is not looking like it's a party but is a cult of personality around Donald Trump. That what is defining it is not that what Liz Cheney believes on uh, social policy or international affairs or tax policy or whatever else. It's whether she is fully in allegiance to Donald Trump and to his uh, insistence that most Republicans – Certainly, most Republicans off the record in leadership positions will say they know isn't true, but that they are continuing to hold to. Uh, and that's a really dangerous thing because what I think we can see from the riot is that there are a lot of people who don't realize that this is, in the minds of some Republican leaders, just a thing that they're saying to get a political advantage, that it's real, that they really were there to break down the doors of the Capitol and go looking to stop the certification of the election. So, Isaac, I want to talk about parties a little more, and then we'll get to some particular things. 
One of the criticisms that people level to you, and that I think is is your criticism also, but it comes from your conversations with other people that you describe in the book, is the degree to which Barack Obama did not do much for party building for the Democratic Party. And I think various people refer to the way he treated the party as benign neglect. And that's generally treated in your book as a negative thing. And it's one of the reasons why some people speculate Hillary Clinton lost and Obama was focused on other things. And I guess, why is that necessarily a bad thing when today we're talking so much about the crisis of tribalism and we're constantly saying things, and you were alluding to this a moment ago, that there are people who are putting party over country and spending too much time on their tribe. The fact that Obama spent more time thinking about the kinds of legislation he wanted to pass uh, and had an attitude of benign neglect towards parties, in the current atmosphere, is that not a good thing? I, I think to to qualify good or bad uh, is not the argument that I was making in the book. But at the beginning of the book, I'm trying to explain what are the circumstances that led to Trump being elected, to, that led to the weakness there that he was able to capitalize on. But now take it, a, that t- is, take it as yeah. a normative question now. Like, going forward, we're talking about battle for the soul. There's there's obviously something normative in that in that question and in that struggle. Going forward, should, should Biden be spending a lot of time building up the party as a party? And should the Republicans be doing the same? Is that our fate, building up parties so they can fight with each other as opposed to building up some other thing? Well, there's a balance that seems like it needs to be struck here, and Biden is certainly searching for it, right? Uh, Where some of it is to not engage in the fights with Trump and in the political fights back and forth. Uh, I've referred to this in in an article I wrote recently as a a pre-Twitter approach to politics that Biden has. Uh, But because this is going to be fought out in elections and will be determined by who wins and who loses elections, there does need to be an investment politically for Democrats if they want to have any of their objectives to have a chance that uh, that it goes through campaigns. When we get to the midterms next year, right? if the Republicans win the majorities in the House and the Senate, it doesn't matter how, how high-minded Joe Biden wants to be. Uh, his agenda is finished. It's, it's simple. And that's why there's this push to approach things like the the voting laws in uh, states that have been passed on a level of policy, whether that's fighting uh, Democrats fighting them at the state legislature level or with the bills that they want to pass in Congress, the For the People Act, the John Lewis Act, but also the uh, – and by the way, there's a, a legal aspect to this, lawsuits that are going on to try to stop some of them. But there's also a political aspect to it. If the Democrats had had a better November last year, and it should be said, obviously Joe Biden won. That's a big thing for the Democrats. But it did not go as well as they were hoping and thinking it would go on uh, pretty much any level, House level, Senate level, uh, uh, state legislature level. Then it would have been much harder for these laws to get passed uh, in some of the states. In in Texas, it's a very different thing, obviously, as a large majority for Republicans. But this is a question where it's it's entangled, and Biden is trying to figure out how to have a, a political approach that is stronger than Obama's. And so far, he is and his White House is more invested in the DNC than uh, than Obama's was, but also to not make it all about politics all the time. And what Biden's thinking is, is that if he can get something like the infrastructure bill passed, then that makes much more of a difference in people's lives that will benefit Democrats uh, than, uh, than pretty much anything else he could do. So I think you said earlier that one of the ways you can describe the, the battle for the soul as sort of the pragmatists arrayed against uh, democratic socialists or however you want to describe them. There's something that, that's been interesting to me for a while. I had Congressman Richie Torres on the show a few weeks ago, who, as you know, is a rising star in the Democratic Party, a uh, representative who represents a large swath of the South Bronx, poorest district in the country, median income $28,000 or less. And we talked about how Democrats should be addressing issues of poverty very famously, Bobby Kennedy was kind of a tough-minded, pragmatic Democrat, you know, a long, long time ago, uh, 50, half a century ago. He's one of the greatest legislators ever to serve in the history of the 
United States Congress. He was a prolific legislator. And even though he had passionately held progressive principles and convictions, he was always able and willing to build coalitions in order to pass legislation. That was an important part of his campaign. And I've read recently people describing how Biden has criticized Democrats for for emphasizing the plight of the poor at the expense of society's middle rungs. I worked for Senator Schumer, who talked about the middle class, wrote a book about the middle class. It seems to be a mantra of folks. Obviously, the middle class is important and needs to be built up. In this battle for the soul, do you have a view or an inkling as to where issues of poverty arise and where they're placed? Yeah, it's tricky because uh, one of the things that I mentioned in passing in the book, but I spent a lot of time on at the time, was in uh, the run-up to the 2014 midterms, the Obama White House was focusing on uh, trying to raise the minimum wage. And one of the things that stopped that from happening is they got a lot of polling back that said that most voters were hearing raising the minimum wage as something that didn't affect them. Yeah. That's, that was that to that 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 meant that poor people would get more money. But what does it do for me? Right. And what Biden wants to try to figure out is how you do things that will help people who are in poverty. And there's certainly stuff in the American Rescue Plan that does that. Uh, but that it's not just that. And if you look at the child tax credit, for example, that that's up to six hundred dollars a month for almost all American households, right? Not all. And the people who are out of it are the people who are very, very wealthy. But if you get a couple hundred dollars a month, even if you're an upper middle class family from the government all of a sudden, then that's something that's happening for you. And I do think that a big part of what left the space there that Trump capitalized on was this feeling people had that they were they were getting left out, no matter who they were. That it's something that things were being done for other people. That and whether that was the government was taking care of the poor, or even after the Wall Street crash, uh, the the bankers seemed to be doing great. They got their bailouts, and people, a, a lot of people in the middle, just felt like I I'm working harder than I ever worked. And I still can't pay my mortgage, or I still can't figure out how to send my kid to college, or whatever it is. And no one's doing anything. And for now me. you're going to give money to poor people so they can eat. Right. Well, I mean, how can but, you, I mean, th- you know, this is this is the fundamental the, problem that I, <laughs> that I have with all of this. And maybe one of the lessons, you know, the sort of policy-related consequence of that is, to the extent you do things for the poor, there has to be either no or very little means testing. So you have popular programs like Social Security. Otherwise, people think someone else is getting a, a, you know, a handout, and they're not. Although at the same time, there's this interesting controversy over the push to, to forgive college loans, which affects not the poor, you know, but it, but a different rung in the socioeconomic spectrum. And you have people saying, well, that's not fair either. And, and you know, maybe any time you target a particular rung, folks in the other rungs get upset. And is that just inevitable? And we have to deal with it. Well, like when, as you're talking about this, it's making me think about uh, and how Biden thinks about this. Uh, So I I did, there are sort of two full interviews with Biden in the book. And one of them, as I said, is when he's president already, but one of them was about a week before Trump's inauguration. And we're sitting in his office in the West Wing, the VP's office, a couple doors down from the Oval Office. And uh, I said to him, so what what is it? What do you think a Democrat is? Right, it's like it goes to what you were talking about a, a few minutes ago. Right, what is what is this party? And that was at the moment when everybody in the Democratic Party was in true existential crisis. And what he started talking about is, oh, this needs to be speaking to people that we've forgotten, that we lost the connection to, the working class, the people who want to, who are in the middle class and, and are trying to raise themselves up. And he said to me, uh, what I've learned in my entire career in politics, you can do anything with somebody and get them to move along as long as you don't change their standard of living downward. Right. right? And that's, that's core to Biden. That's who he... Uh, is at in the essence, right? If you give people a little something, then then maybe you can get them to be more open when it comes to I don't know uh, immigration policy or uh, or 
to your point, if they feel like they're getting something, then they will be more willing to help other people too. But if they always feel like they're getting left out of the equation, then they, what, what we've seen is, certainly in 2016, is that it makes people say, you know what? Screw it. I want somebody to do something for me. And when they looked at Trump, what a lot of voters saw was, hey, I get it. Like, he's a sexist or he says racist stuff sometimes or he seems crazy. But at least he's angry. Like, I'm angry, <laughs> at least right? he's angry. Um, and, I mean, you can laugh at it, but it was really powerful, yeah. right? Uh, Although I, as, I think, I feel that, and tell me if I'm naive, and I very well may be another reason why politics may not be for me. <laughs> That, that there are times, I, I wonder if there's a failure of imagination on the part of politicians, because there are times when Americans band together and get angry, in fact, like the word you just used, about issues and policies that actually don't affect them and don't hurt them, but they have a sense of moral outrage about them. Case in point, family separations at the border. That's not something that an affluent family in Armonk, New York, had to really worry about, but there was a moral outrage People wanted something done about that. I'm not comparing that necessarily to, to issues of extreme and persistent poverty in the South Bronx or in other places, but isn't, isn't there a, a mode of politics that allows people not to have to choose the middle class over the poor? Yeah, but I, I mean, human beings are self-interested. <laughs> they, uh, they often want to know what's going to happen for them. I mean, a better example, maybe, than even the family separation uh, response, which was a, a big thing, uh, is what happened last summer uh, with the, the protests after George Floyd was killed. And I remember talking to uh, a guy named Mark Pocan, who's a congressman from Wisconsin, big progressive leader. He's white. And he said to me that the way that he knew that something was different in what was going on is that there were protests in, like, the cul-de-sacs in the suburbs, right? That people were res- black or white or whatever, that it was not about who you, uh, what color your skin was or your socioeconomic status. There was this bigger uprising of people saying, like, enough, that's too much. But it did take... A video that was almost nine minutes long of somebody being slowly strangled to death for that to happen, despite years of other black men being killed by police. And it's not like it should be said that has to date generated uh, a, a bill that is signed into law to change anything. My conversation with Isaac continues after this. You interviewed and talked to a lot of these candidates who had varying degrees of success until they all fell by the wayside and Biden became the nominee. And I have a couple of questions for you about that process of observing these people and talking about them and taking notes and then writing this book. Did you see any moments of nobility or grace in the 2020 campaign that stood out to you? Yeah, I think maybe more than most people would expect. So I started working on this book. I signed the contract just about three years ago in 2018, thinking that this was going to be a crazy election worth keeping track of, obviously not knowing just how crazy. Uh, And I went to uh, all the campaigns and said, hey, I'm going to work on this book. It'll come out in the spring of 2021. It would be great to have access to the campaign, to the candidate in a way that you wouldn't give day to day under the agreement, you know, in journalism, we call it an embargo, that it wouldn't come out until then. And uh, a lot of folks agreed, uh, including a bunch of the candidates. Uh, and that gave a an insight into these people because I was able to talk to them in the moment and say, like, what, is, what are you really feeling right now, right? How does it come across? Uh, and sometimes, sometimes through that or sometimes just being on the trail, you'd see things that, uh, that that would sort of surprise me or surprise me by how unsurprising they were in a way. So like the night before the South Carolina primary, uh, I was in uh, this college gym where Biden had just given a speech and it was pre-COVID, it was pre-Secret uh, Service protection for him. And he's walking, doing the rope line, talking to people. And there's a woman there holding a piece of paper shaking 
And she is encouraged by the staff to go up and talk to Biden. And she's clearly so nervous to do it. And she gets there and she hands him the piece of paper. And tears are starting to stream down her face. And and the piece of paper talks about how she has a daughter who had a medical condition. And she's just frantic, doesn't know what to do. And Biden holds it out in front of him. And he just says to her, let me make sure that we get your number. Maybe I can do something. And this is, you know, 12 hours before the voting starts in South Carolina, what ended up being the beginning of his route uh, on the way to winning the nomination, and obviously the presidency. That, that's that moment where he didn't know that I could hear that. He wasn't doing it for that. that that's, that's who that's he him. is, yeah. right? Uh, you see that sometimes, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders has a, a, a reputation for being pretty abrasive, and he often lives up to that reputation. Uh, but sometimes he also, when he sees somebody who's really struggling, he'll connect with that person. And he'll, like, zone in completely on that person. Uh, Buttigieg, um, bring him up again. Uh, I was sitting with him the night of the Iowa caucuses, again, under one of these embargoed conversations. And it was about an hour before the voting started. We didn't know then that the caucuses were going to be a disaster, and we certainly didn't. he, He was hoping that he would win, but it felt like it could go kind of either way. And... He had just had uh, a week before there. He'd been at a fundraiser in Chicago, and there were some protesters who showed up with signs that said "Queers Against Pete," and they had criticized him for his uh, college tuition plan not having enough to deal with uh, these very specific situations about child of privilege who was gay and came out to his parents and was kicked out and then needed assistance uh, and attacked him for how he handled the uh, the shooting. Uh, a police officer had shot a man in South Bend, if you remember, in 2019. Yeah. And he, uh, and how he'd led the department that led, that led to those circumstances. And watching Buttigieg, who is, as your listeners will know, pretty analytic about things, Wrestle with those things. Wrestle with being the most successful openly gay candidate in American history, but have it not be the point of pride for a lot of gay people because uh, gay activists who who were saying that he wasn't doing enough, right? Queers against Pete. And that how he was fighting with that internally to process it. Or, uh, again, how he, when he spoke with that uh, with the, that protester about the man who was shot in South Bend. These, th- th- these moments where you think, like, this is, we want politics to be not just about super ambitious people elbowing each other out of the way to see who can get a primary delegate one way or the other. And... Often that is what happens. But if you spend enough time with people, uh, I think anybody who's going to throw their uh, their lives into a presidential campaign, you'll get moments like this out of people. And, it, the, you know, those are three stories. Uh, it, it, it's it, often through these campaigns, you'd see something where it's just like that connection. You think, oh, that's why this person is spending endless amount of time and money in Iowa, far from the family and and doing these, <laughs> um, Andrew Yang once referred to it to me as the candidate Olympics, right? All the things that they have to do, uh, flip burgers, or, you know, uh, try, try this food. It's or, harder you know, things than speech, flipping right? burgers. <laughs> yeah, I did actually watch him flip burgers at one stop. So, yeah. There's a particular phenomenon you describe in the book where Obama, post-presidency, is not particularly vocal publicly, but people are making the pilgrimage to come see him, people who are aspiring to be president in 2020, including Elizabeth Warren and, and some others, Kamala Harris also. And, and Obama put it in a particular way that I found striking. He said something like, don't do it unless you feel like you really, really have to do it. And I guess he was talking about some inner fire or burning feeling that someone needed to possess. He didn't quite call it ambition. Maybe it was that. But if you don't have that need to do it, absolute need to do it, then you shouldn't do it. What do you make of that? Yeah, well, uh, 
part of what you're getting at is Obama and this role that he had. And yes, uh, there's a lot of criticism from folks about how he wasn't more invested in the Democratic Party as president. But then what I get into in the book is how he was actually pretty involved as in his post-presidency in trying to figure out how the party moves forward. Somebody who was talking to him then described it as like a parent who is teaching his kid how to ride a bike, who sees that it's a little wobbly, puts his hand back on the seat for a little bit. <laughs> um, and... <laughs> And he was having these meetings with uh, most of the people who ended up running for president, in addition to a, a bunch of other people. Uh, most of them were uh, had not been reported on before. And what he's talking about, uh, he, he gave that same advice to people, uh, to, to whether it was Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren, anybody who said, I think I'm going to run for president. What he's really saying is like, don't do it unless you really feel like you need to do it, right? Because it's hard and it stinks and you're away from your family and you give the same uh, speech a million times and you have to go uh, make nice to this local uh, political Pumba or Puba, <laughs> Pumba. <laughs> this local no, the political Pumbas, Pumba. The Pumbas you can ignore. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the Pumbas. There, there may be too many cartoons in my house at the moment. Uh, <laughs> But uh, and and try to make them feel uh, like they're they're a big shot. And there there are, uh, is a story that when Obama was running for president uh, in two thousand seven, probably this is when this happened. Uh, he's driving around and he says to David Axelrod, as political consultant, "You know, this would be really interesting if I wasn't in the middle of it." <laughs> <laughs> And there's another story uh, that he likes to tell that he uh, it's right before the Iowa caucuses in uh, in 2008, and of course he's fighting it out hard with Hillary Clinton, and he is going in between stops in Iowa, and <clears throat> they get in the car and they hand him uh, a list of people to call, and he says, "Who are these uh, county chairs?" And they say, "No." He says, I'm just too tired. I don't want to do it. And they said, well, you have to make these calls, Senator. And he says, well, what, are they donors? And they said, no, uh, they're, they're high school students. <laughs> because <laughs> high school students can caucus if they uh, are going to be 18 by the time of the election. And so he calls one up and he says, hi, uh, it's Senator uh, Barack Obama here. And <laughs> there's a girl on the other side and she says, oh, hi, Barack. <laughs> She says, uh, I'm just, I'm in the middle of a yearbook meeting right now. Can I call you back later? And he, he was not yet the, the commander in chief. <laughs> right. He was not, he was not inspiring so much awe. Yeah. And so you have to be ready to do it. You mentioned this in recent writing about Joe Biden. And there's a parallel in your book. And in both cases, neither Joe Biden nor you in the book, obviously for different reasons, don't spend a lot of time talking about Donald Trump. I wonder if you think with respect to the Biden strategy, that's wise, that's pragmatic, that's tenable, given that Trump is still out there. Trump still is, you know, so far winning the battle for the soul, such as it is, of the Republican Party. He may run again. Some people think it's very likely he could win again. What do you make of the strategy to sort of ignore him? Because on the other side of the coin, I know there are people who say, and I've heard some people recently talking about how if you want to persuade people about something in politics or policy or anything else, among the most polarizing words you can use are Trump or Obama or the names of people who voters and other folks immediately sympathize with or hate. And so if you want to get your point across, don't mention those people. What do you think? So uh, my strategy in not including a lot of Trump in the book uh, was because I felt like there were a lot of books about there by, uh, or, or certainly were going to be, about Donald Trump by reporters who covered him in and out. And you should go read those if you want another Trump book. This is not another Trump book at all. It was my feeling, and I hope it holds up, that there was a lot going on in the Democratic Party trying to figure it out that obviously Trump was the context for, but that required uh, a, a real look that didn't get caught up in the day-to-day -day of Trump stuff. And, uh, and of course, those are the people who ended up in power, at least for now. The Biden strategy is about how he approaches fights, which is that his instinct is if you get into a back and forth with someone, then it's going to get worse. Uh, and that there is a way to de-escalate things by not engaging. And uh, what what I've reported on recently is that the, the strategy of the White House flowing from him on down 
is to treat Trump, uh, one of the, one of his aides said to me, like a crazy person who believes in conspiracies, right? Who's not an equal, uh, to sort of dismiss him, put him off to the side. He saw the way that Tom Brady kind of made fun of him yeah. indirectly, right? <laughs> People um, refer to that as Donald Trump's worst day ever. <laughs> yeah, because he wants to be, he, he's often talked about Tom Brady and wanting to be a supporter. And then Tom Brady is standing at the Super Bowl and makes a joke about how, hey, 40% of people think we still didn't win the Super Bowl, which just treats the election conspiracy stuff as the ridiculous crap that it is, right? And just makes fun of it. We found our rhythm. We got on a roll. Not a lot of people think that we could have won. And um, in fact, I think about 40% of the people still don't think we won. I understand that. You understand that, Mr. President? I understand that. Yeah. Donald Trump hates being made fun of. He hates people laughing at him. But that's what was going on there from someone that he wants to have a connection to and doing it and making the joke to Joe Biden, right? Uh, And Biden laughing along and saying, like, he said uh, the Brady line is like, uh, you get what I'm saying, right? And Biden says, like, oh, yeah, I get it. Uh, So I, I, I think that what, the Biden folks are watching at the moment is when they have to get more engaged, if they do. And some of that is going to come back to uh, seeing what the election results are starting in the fall of this year um, and going into the primaries next year. How big of a factor really is Trump? How defining is he? And if he is defining, and it seems like he's going to be the force that is uh, dominating the Republican Party, as he certainly is right now, and if he's going to be the likely opponent in 2024, I think you will see Biden engage more. But one thing that I've noticed about how Biden is able to succeed in the way that he goes about this is, uh, I'll give you the example of what happened with uh, the the All-Star game, the, the baseball All-Star game, when it the Major League uh, decided to move the game after those voting laws were passed in Georgia, moved it out of Atlanta. Biden was asked about this in the period where it wasn't clear what MLB was going to do. They said, do you think that that's something people should look at? And he said, yeah, I think they should consider it. If you think about the response that that generated, people did seem to say, like, maybe that's something they should consider. Now, imagine if Donald Trump had said that or if Barack Obama had said that. It would have just erupted as a huge political uh, craziness back and forth, everybody to their uh, different barricades, and it wouldn't have been the same kind of conversation. And but why when is that? Biden, dis- I, I think it's because Biden has this calmer way of uh, talking about things. He, uh, people feel a different kind of personal connection to him. And he doesn't light up the same kind of response. We see that whether it's that uh, clearly uh, there's a lot of things that have been written at this point about how conservative publishing is finding a really hard time uh, selling any anti-Biden books, right? right? Well, Uh, there's some people who say that that, that with with respect to the comparison to Obama, who also, pretty calm guy, pretty calm temperament, it has to do with something other than their temperament. Uh, yes, uh, something in the skin color the area. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's really true too. Uh, and obviously, uh, Trump is a reaction in part to the anxiety that people felt about the country changing. That a guy named Barack Obama, who was uh, half Af- African, half Kansan, uh, seemed to embody. Right when he the, the whole idea of make America great again is the again there right is to bring it back to something uh, and uh, and so that is for sure an advantage that Biden has that uh, Obama has and I don't mean advantage and like it's just the reality politically people are uh, looked at Obama and some people said this is different and that's great and some people said this is different and it's scary. Let's talk about somebody else that you've written about also important and presumably will be on the American political stage for a while, and that's the vice president. Kamala Harris, how hard is her job, particularly given the tasks assigned to her, and how will that help or hurt her in future politics? I believe you have a view. Her job is almost impossible, it seems like, uh, because of all the But how can an unimportant job that prior political figures have referred to as not worth a bucket of spit or something else How can a job that is not so important be so difficult? Well, number one, there is the expectation that she will be running for president pretty soon. And that's either 
2024 if something changes, and it should be said, Joe Biden is for sure. Every intention, every plan, everything, there's no anything other than he's running in 2024. But let's see what happens, right? Things, as uh, you've said, like nobody knows anything. So um, I I wouldn't uh, get fully into the predictions on this. But if not, she's going to be running for president in 2028. And uh, there's also that she is a uh, historic first, obviously, in a lot of ways, right? You think all of the vice presidents that we've had, until this point in history, have been white men, right? And she is the first woman. She is the first uh, black person in that. She is the first person of South Asian descent there. That's a lot that's on her, a lot of expectations that are there. Uh, And Republicans uh, who either just because they want to win an election uh, and see her as the future opponent, or uh, certainly there's a strain of Republicans who Likewise, are having a reactionary effect, uh, a reactionary response to her effect on things, and want to get things back to it not being someone who looks and sounds like her. Uh, there, there's a lot of pressure there, and meanwhile, you think about the fact that she had she'd never been to the White House before she was inaugurated as vice president. She'd only been in Washington for four years. Right. There's a lot to learn about this job. And Biden has taken this approach of making her the apprentice, uh, sort of pun uh, intended there. Um, and <laughs> But why, why is he given her, just to cut to it, one of the most difficult portfolios you can give someone on some of the most intractable issues? His theory is that what she is doing, for example, on being the diplomatic lead on the migration crisis is the assignment that Obama gave him as vice president and that she should get the same treatment. A lot of people look at this, and I had a quote from uh, John Cornyn, the senator from Texas, uh, who's Republican, uh, very opposed to the Biden approach uh, on immigration. He said to me that it feels like he handed her a grenade, pulled the pin out, and walked away. And that's not somebody who's hoping good things for Kamala Harris's political future. Right? Uh, so you'd think that maybe he would give her uh, things that would be easier to solve or that would provide clearer wins. And certainly, if she is going to run for president again, she'll need to have some things that she can say, I did this, this is my accomplishment. But so much of what's going on uh, from the president and his top aides at this point is about making sure that Biden is the, the star of the show and making sure that every accomplishment is primarily a Biden accomplishment, that it hasn't left a lot of room for her to do that. That may change as we get further from the beginning of the presidency. And certainly, if Biden runs for re-election with her as his running mate, which is what would happen, uh, and they win, uh, and come 2025, and then the positioning would start for her to run for president, you could see things moving in that way. But so far, it it hasn't been there. I think you're right. He's been giving her a lot of things that are really tough. Uh, uh, One thing that may be the exception to that, depending on how she plays it, is this assignment to do stuff on voting rights, which is not going to be that successful, it wouldn't seem, if her main task is trying to negotiate in the Senate, but would be more successful, perhaps, if she were to go around the country and raise the political pressure to do this, which is something that a lot of people who want good things for her, like uh, uh, William Barber, the reverend, the poor people's campaign leader, uh, said to me that he he feels like this is not the time to have power and not use it, that that he wants her going around in the South and every place uh, else that uh, can drum up political pressure here to do something to motivate the votes, which, again, ties back to what we were talking about earlier, this connection between politics and legislation. All right, I have one final question for you, Isaac. No pressure, but your answer to this question will determine whether we even run this sucker. Okay. All. <laughs> all right. Okay, you ready? All right. Is it Mary's dress waves <laughs> or Mary's dress sways? Uh, what what I will say is I, I'm surprised. Oh, just answer the no, damn no. question. The, no, this is what I was going to say. Is I'm surprised. <laughs> there are a bunch of Springsteen references in this book, and I'm I'm actually shocked that this whole interview wasn't about them. You know, the fact that Joe Biden thought that his uh, his launch rally should have Springsteen playing at it before he was talked out of it. <laughs> 
I, I, I read those portions of the book, but I wanted to save this question for last. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Uh, I think, I, I think we got to go with, uh, with Swayze. It right. sounds well, nice right. having you on the show. No, I, <laughs> I spent some time addressing this recently, and I have always thought it was waves. My listeners are sick of me talking about this, I'm sure, given how much more important stuff is going on in the world. But there, there is considerable evidence for the proposition that it was intended to be Swayze, but I'm still going to sing it waves because that's my right as an American. But I, what I want to know is, and of course, uh, you're a good lawyer who's made uh, a lot of hay in your career out of finding a little bit. What difference does it make to the song itself? It doesn't really. <laughs> it, it doesn't make it doesn't make a damn bit of difference because you can listen to it, and I think there are occasions. As someone pointed out, and you know, I don't brook a lot, any criticism of Bruce generally, but it's true he's not one of the great enunciators in music history. Right? <laughs> I think and, that's fair. I think he would grunt at that in, in agreement. <laughs> and, and David Remnick has a piece, you know, he's one of the people who got to the bottom of this, such as it is, Battle for the Soul of Thunder Road, I guess <laughs> you could call it. That there are a lot of lyrics that we didn't know for a long time. Jimi Hendrix, excuse me while I kiss this guy. Exactly. That could be sky or guy. Yeah. And it, it doesn't really matter. I feel like, uh, you know, just coming at it from a, a writer's perspective, I guess, I would not think of a dress waving. I would think of a dress swaying. But um, he's also. I think the better argument is, is that, the, is that the, the, the next line, there's, it's a better sways rhymes with plays as the radio plays. There you go. All right. But well, again, then, no. it, doesn't, it doesn't much matter. I, I look forward to future episodes being com- committed uh, completely to this topic. <laughs> and you, you should, you should you, why uh, Springsteen's doing all those podcasts with Obama. Get him on now. Have it out with him. <laughs> yeah, I, tur- I turned that down. I didn't have time. I was busy. Edward Isaac Dover, Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaign to Defeat Trump. Pick it up. Thanks a lot, Breed. My conversation with Isaac Dover continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Isaac Dover. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytunedatcafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. The CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Curlander, Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Chris Boylan, and Sean Walsh. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise.